Booyakasha! Welcome back to another episode of your boy G Swizz. Although I am lonely right now, the Micah Ma'a will be joining me and the Andrea Becker will be joining me. She is the team psychologist for USA Volleyball and uh, I couldn't be more thrilled to have her on. But before we get into that, I just want to give a quick shout out to Manscaped and their Performance Package 4.0 and their Ball Toner and their Lawnmower 4.0. Just remember, guys, come on now. We've been there a billion times. I mean... Uh, we we can do this all day. Again, what's the promo code? Volleyballs, all cap, no cap. Twenty percent off free shipping, and Doctor Price electrolytes. Add some twenty for twenty percent off because I just took a bunch of Doctor Price electrolytes. So I'm fired up for this energy. I'm fired up for this podcast. <laughs> whatever, whatever, man. The Andrew Becker. We're joined now here by a professor and sports. How would I mean sports psychologist? You would call yourself, yeah, Andrea. Sure, you can call me that. You know, there's a lot of discrepancy over the term sports psychologist or mental performance coach, or um, there's people call them a lot of different things. So I would just say that I basically coach more of the mental side of the game. How's that? Right. That's perfect. I think. Uh, yeah. First off, I'd like to apologize because when we're reading your bio. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very simplified uh, bio that I just gave you because we were reading it. We were like, we were like, I could, I could spend five minutes on this. It's very impressive, and we're very, very lucky to have you on. Um, so again, thank Bravo. you so much for for hopping on here. Sure. It's the first thir- first thing we've always tried to get different kinds of minds on this show and different kinds of uh, feedback in terms of whether it's for ourselves or it's for um, our listeners out there. Um, just curiosity. With COVID and all, I know that a lot of people have gone through like a lot of mental uh, things kind of happening. I was wondering if like, if you've noticed that there's been more stuff that they don't normally have to deal with that you've had to kind of work with or kind of learn about yourself and how to kind of teach, if you can kind of mm-hmm. go into that for a second. Yeah, you know, I think the the situation with COVID has been, has influenced people's lives in much different ways. Right. And so there are some people where it created a situation where it was helpful to their lifestyle. Maybe they didn't have to commute somewhere. Maybe they didn't have to to go to work and they were happy to be at home. And for some people, it could be very isolating um, and, and they might feel like they're really missing out on all of the activities that they're used to doing in their normal daily lives. So, so it really runs the gamut in terms of how the situation has affected different people. And the same is true for athletes. Um, Mm -hmm. Would I say that it has increased, you know, issues with mental health perhaps, but I think what it, what it has done even more so than that is just simply illuminate that people are already dealing with issues of mental health Um, and that athletes are more than just athletes. And they have a lot of other things going on in their lives that, most of the general public or their fans aren't aware of. And so they're just expecting a certain level of performance. And when the performance is not there, they're solely judging them on the outcome of their behaviors rather than all of the things, because they don't see it, that go into that performance and all those sacrifices they make. And particularly in the sport of volleyball, for example, where the large majority of our professional athletes play and perform the large majority of their lives overseas or in a country where they don't know the language and they don't have the support of their friends and family. And they maybe don't make a salary that you would make if you were in another professional sport like major league baseball or, or NFL football player or the NBA basketball player. So I think um, if anything, it's illuminated that we do, that our mental well-being is important and that we should address that um, in whatever ways that we can to help ourselves have you know, the most healthy lifestyle that we can. I think you, you touched on it a little bit with sp- specific things about what makes the volleyball lifestyle um, a little bit more difficult than other ones. What are some mental health things or psychological things that stand out to you from volleyball than other sports and things that you run into more in volleyball mm-hmm. than other sports or, or specific challenges to volleyball that, that make it kind of what it is? Mm-hmm. You know, I, <laughs> it's funny you should ask that because I, <clears throat> if I were to take all of the meetings I have with athletes from all different sports, it typically comes down to a lot of the same issues, to be honest, 
um, we tend to evaluate ourselves on our outcomes versus our efforts and our attitudes that the process that goes into achieving those outcomes. And so uh, instead of instead of focusing on the effort you put forth toward a serve or the focus you had toward the serve, um, people are evaluating the outcome of the serve itself. And so sometimes a matter of inches could influence the way that a volleyball player feels about themselves. For example, the ball went just, you know, one inch out um, and they missed and now they feel bad about themselves versus one inch in the court and they, they got an ace and now they feel great about themselves. And, and so are you really going to evaluate yourself as being good or not good based on a couple of inches? you know, and sometimes those inches are up to chance. And so really what, so that's one thing I find that athletes are evaluating themselves on their outcomes instead of their focus, their effort, the things that are within their control. And that's very common. The other thing that athletes are doing is comparing themselves to others um, or worrying about maybe what others are thinking about them. And so, you know, maybe, um, maybe their, their coach overseas, has a different cultural style. And if you make a mistake, you're ripped out. So now every time that coach gets near, near you, you're starting to think about what that coach is thinking rather than focusing on the task at hand. And so it creates a split focus when we're worried about what other people are thinking about ourselves. Athletes would deal with that all the time. Now, these are more performance psychological issues that I'm addressing. Um, but I think that athletes also deal with family issues. They deal with fatigue. Um, I think, you know, they deal with social issues, cultural issues. Um, and so I, you know, I could go down the list. Managing expectations is another big one. Um, what type of expectations do you have going into a match? What, you know, or what type of expectations do you have going into a new club, whether it's living arrangements or what this experience is going to be like, what the coaching is going to be like. And then when those expectations aren't met, how does the athlete or the individual respond to that? There's so, I mean, this is such a large issue, but, um, but yeah, I would just say that, you know, volleyball players themselves or the sport isn't that unique to any of the sports in that um, all athletes and young people and, all people are dealing with uh, similar psychological uh, challenges. Maybe it's financial as well, you know? So yeah, I think what's important is that um, if you're in a new space or you're in a new environment, that first you make the environment as good as possible. So if you're in another country and you're playing overseas, um, <laughs> you have an apartment or a place to live that's uplifting do you like your space are the people who are in your space with you positive contributors to your daily life or do they weigh you down and i mean i, I think those are the things that that everyone needs to evaluate and sometimes it's hard because sometimes it could be a family member and it's hard to maybe cause Pretty that separation space. yes cause influence the space and separation when you know you you obviously love or, or care about the the person that's interesting you say that to like wrap it up because I think I told you Gage that did I not like like dude yeah. just make sure your space I think when you went yeah, overseas yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like he's like that what's your advice I'm like dude my one advice is like just make sure your space is good because you spend so much time alone there that and like that can make or break like a lot of your your time is just spent alone in your apartment and if you like it and it like puts you in a good place oh yeah then that's seventy percent of your time overseas. 100%. Yeah, and you you actually you brought up something else. Um, most people are pretty good and in a pr pretty good positive mental state <laughs> when their focus is on others, um, when they're doing things for others, when they're engaging in what I would consider acts of gratitude, where you're doing things that you don't expect anything in return. Those are the things that make us feel good as as human beings in general. Um, when we feel at our worst, if, you know, if most people reflect it's times when they're by themselves and the focus is inward. Yeah. And I always say self-focus is the worst kind of, our self-counsel is the worst counsel we can do for ourselves. It's much better to talk to a stranger, get it off your chest and then go refocus on doing something positive for other people. And, and what we know from research on happiness in general is that happiness does not come from enjoyable moments where we're you know, playing in a match or going to a movie or playing video games or enjoying a meal with friends. Um, because those moments, acts of enjoyment or experiences of enjoyment are fleeting. It's only enjoyable while you're in the moment. 
when you engage in acts of gratitude, maybe you go and deliver meals to, to people who can't get out of their home during COVID or, you know, just engaging in something where you're giving to others and you're those, those, the feeling that you get from the moment of doing it sticks with you over a long period of time. And so you can feel better about yourself. And really that's, you know, a lot of the research suggests that that's where happiness, true happiness really comes from. It's about the focus on others and, and giving and engaging in acts of gratitude. And so I think that's, you know, another something that, that people could, could do when they feel isolated is then to go get, go do something where you are giving, giving to others. That's so important because like, I think like when it came for me, like when I first got over here, I play in Bulgaria. It's my first year out of, out of college and everything. So going from California to Hawaii to Bulgaria was an insane culture shock. And all that you hit the nail on the head for a lot of those things. But because, and I think by doing acts of gratitude, whether it's just like listening to a friend or just kind of talking them through kind of stuff, like, because a lot of time you're going through the same kind of stuff a lot of time, or maybe it's not, you know, but it also just, you realize that there's a bigger picture to things, you know, you realize you learn, first of all, you learn so much more about yourself. And it's like the worst times when you have like the worst practices or continuously worse practices. And like mm-hmm. you said, you kind of self-talk to yourself or I just be on the couch and be like, what did I just do? And then you hear from your teammates and they get like really, really, and, and it brings you to a dark place at times. Um, and then one thing that you kind of learn to do, like you said, relax, like take something off it and you need to have, like my brother, who's not able to have be on this podcast, is he used to be all volleyball centric, like his whole life revolved, and that's completely okay. But you need to have a few other things outside of volleyball, whether it's family, whether it's like I said, anything else, or like helping strangers or helping anyone. Sure. And he he didn't have that, so when things weren't going well, and I was the same way. When things go when going well, your whole world's not going well. So there's nothing to kind of bring you back and to, and to kind of calm down. I think for our listeners out there, that's super important that realize, okay, you have your obsession, you have this, but you need outlets. And I think that's so important to, especially over overseas life. And I know we find weird things about ourselves. And, and I'm sure, Micah, you found some like weird stuff to kind of deal with yourself or just kind of hobbies or whatever. And that's what I found was most important to me. The other thing too, Gage, sorry for, for hopping in here, but you said when I have a really bad practice, yeah, then, then these things are important to me. And I would, I would follow that up with what makes a really bad practice. And I'm going to go ahead and answer my own question. Right. And the answer is if you had a bad attitude or less than hundred percent effort, otherwise, whether you see improvement or not, or whether you get the outcome you want or not you were still refining the parameters of your abilities. Sometimes progress is not visible. And so because we spend so much time evaluating ourselves on our outcomes, we're really hard on ourselves and we do these self-punishment behaviors when we don't get the outcomes. Um, Whether it's not, I mean, I've had athletes who don't drink water during games, they don't let themselves sleep. They don't let themselves have a meal. They don't get post-game treatment if they don't feel like they've performed well. And, you know, I think about myself, you know, my primary job is that I'm a professor and I'm going to go into a class of, you know, 125 students and, and give a lecture. And maybe over the course of that lecture, I talk about 35 slides and two of the slides are going to be really boring. And after the lecture, I go, oh, you know, during those two slides, I could have made it more interesting if I would have done this or would have said that. And, and, you know, but I didn't. So should I not now go eat lunch? Should I punish myself <laughs> for the corporate? Like when you take it and you put it in a different context, it's almost funny. But as athletes, because we're evaluated day in and day out by our outcomes, it's so easy to fall into that mental pattern of self-punishment because as humans, we think we have to be punished in order to free ourselves to be successful and move forward. And we really don't. I mean, that's really not the the purpose of sport performance wasn't to punish people when they performed poorly. The purpose of sport performance initially was that so people were physically active, they were engaging in play and they were developing great character skills. And so how we've taken it and gotten to this point where if you don't get an outcome, you're punished. And I, and I would say that for volleyball players who play in other countries, we tend to enter cultures where that's the only thing that's important. It's almost yeah. like they don't even want to talk to you 
if you had what they consider, a, they don't care about your effort or your attitude. You either got the outcome or you didn't and you're on the court or you're on the bench or, you know, and so I think that's another thing that volleyball players battle. That's really difficult. How do you have a more uh, effort focused mentality when you're in a, a culture that's very outcome focused? And I think it's really difficult. And I think that's something that, that all athletes need to work on. What is the, because <clears throat> when you, when you mentioned that story about say you have 35 slides, what is that psychological, I guess, I don't even know how to describe it. What is, is there a term for the fact that you focused on, there's 35 slides, you did 33 good ones, and then you focus on the two? Because like as a setter or a libero, a libero will pass 25 balls in a game mm -hmm. and get ace twice and very rarely think about the 23 good ones, but like mm -hmm. just be like thinking about those two bad ones. And as a setter, the same. Like I set 100 balls. And mm -hmm. then I miss three and like, as I'm setting the next 10 balls after I miss one, I'm thinking about the one I missed. Mm, Is there yeah. like a psych, like we focus on yeah. the bad so much? Yes. I think that's just a case of good old fashioned perfectionism, right? And uh, it's gotten okay. most athletes to be successful <clears throat> to, to a certain degree. Um, and then at what point, the question is at what point does for perfectionism take away from your success? And that's when it takes away from your success when you're carrying, um, you know, the emotion from 10 sets ago into your present set. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're still hanging on to what happened in the past, then you're not really focused on the present moment in the present set that, you, that you're, that you're setting. And I think it's just human nature to, it's easy to see what didn't go well when there's, when there's 60 great sets and only three bad ones, they stand out. It's easier to see those things. Just like it's easy for people to focus on negativity. You know, they could focus on all these positive things that are going on in their life, but here are the two negative things. That's, that's easy to see. Um, and, and I also think in sports, we're trained as athletes to, you know, it's very rare as we go up the levels from youth sport to high school, to collegiate, to, to professional that, you perform in a game or an, in a match, and then you did something very unique that was successful. How often do you go back and practice and have a coach reinforce that behavior? Reinforce like, wow, Micah, you know, the ball was, you know, really tight to the net and he got up and he, you, you know, he said he positioned himself like this. Let's take the setters and let's try to practice something that went really well. We'd never do that. It was like, it went really well. So we move on, but we focus on these things that don't go really well. And I think, I think to a degree, some combination of both is a lot more healthy than just practicing the things that we don't do well, you know? Um, so. well, do you think this is a unique question, but if they stand out also because they are unique and more rare, for example, like your life is going really well and then like something bad happens and that will stand out. Do you think the opposite happens? Like, if your life, nothing is going well, and then like something good happens, you tend to become more optimistic and like see the good, or if I set a hundred bad sets and I set three good ones, am I now focusing on the good ones because they're more rare? Or is yes, that, does that because, not and, get and what switched you're, like that? What you're speaking to right now is more of a learner mindset. And it has to do with learning and it has to do with expectations, okay? So if someone's brand new at learning setting, <clears throat> there's zero expectations. So they could set a hundred bad ones and they don't feel about them bad about themselves because they don't expect to do well. Right. But when they set a couple good ones, wow, it really stood out. It really, it felt like it popped off my hands. It felt good. I mean, to be honest with you, that's how I feel when I try to set, I still can't get it down. It's like, it's never soft. It never looks as smooth as a, a true setter. I just can't do it. Right. Um, and so I'm constantly working on it. And the few times I feel that feeling where it comes off good, it's a, it feels amazing. And then it stands out to me. And that's, a, that's what we would consider a learner's mindset. Once we become proficient at a skill, we give that up and we develop these expectations that we should perform it perfectly every single time or perform it to a certain standard of excellence every single time, which is just not realistic really in any sport, because every sport and every skill has a probability at which we will perform it well. And so 
to hold ourselves to a standard of perfect and have the expectation that we should perform it well every single time, 100% of the time is unrealistic. And then we hold ourselves to that. Then we judge ourselves and punish ourselves and critique ourselves when we don't get it for that sliver of time, which is really not, not a functional mindset. Well, it's funny also because I think, like you said, it doesn't, if you don't get good at it and put a lot of work in it, it doesn't become a part of your identity. And then your identity doesn't get challenged by your performance of how well or how poorly you do it because you haven't put a lot of effort into perfecting it. But then, so it's kind of like, it takes courage to try and perfect something because if you don't do it well, that's a reflection of like, dude, you've practiced like a thousand hours at this. So like you've actually tried to do it well and you're not right. doing it. This is that why, sometimes, why sometimes so I'm crushing. like, I purposely don't try and practice like hobbies or things that I do for fun or like that I do pretty well, but for someone that doesn't do it all the time so that I can keep this like sense of like, oh, I'm pretty good at it for not really <laughs> trying, you know? Do you think that that at all can be translated into volleyball or that it's just the nature of the beast that you have to be, you have to have some sort of, I guess, what is the word, the phrase that I'm saying? You have to have something in it that you're going to lose, but to be good enough at something. Well, you made me think of two things as you were talking. And the first thing is walking is a skill and we all walk every single day and practice walking, but we still all trip. We just do. <clears throat> We occasionally trip. So, I mean, we do way more than they say 10,000 hour rule for, you know, expert sport performance, whether you agree or disagree, it doesn't really matter. They just say, once you become proficient in something, it doesn't mean you're going to do it perfect all the time. We've done way more than 10,000 hours of walking and we're still going to trip occasionally. So that's, that was my first thought. My second thought is how you perform and the things that you do should not be your identity. That's just something you do. And I think that's another thing that athletes need to separate themselves from. I mean, Gage talked about that, about when you only have volleyball and that's your primary focus and how you identify yourself as a person, then you're going to feel good when the performance of volleyball is good. You're going to feel good enough as a human or, or not good enough. And I think all athletes should redefine themselves based on their core qualities, not what they do in sport, not what they do in their job, not what they, um, what they do in their hobbies. Those are just behaviors that you do, whether they're enjoyable or because you have to do it for your livelihood. But who, who are you as a person? Are you a kind person? Are you a giving person? Are you, um, you know, a, a grounded person? And, and what are the qualities that actually make you who you are and separate that out from your performance in your sport or your performance in your job or, you know, whatever else it is that people are really um, invested in. Do you find that as the times are changing and like things such as like social media, Instagram, all of that kind of things are becoming a lot more prominent in people's lives that people's values aren't necessarily what they put first in in a mm. sense of like their identity but also in their priorities and how has how has the 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 environment of sports changed because of social media and those kinds of things popping up and mm-hmm. and how does that affect i guess sports psychologists I, yeah sports i would say that starting at a very young age, social media makes it a lot easier for young people to evaluate their sense of worth based on what they perceive others worth to be. As opposed to, you know, in 20, when I was a kid growing up, we came home after school and we ran outside and played catch and rode bikes. We didn't have, I couldn't go home after school and see what other people were doing or if they were earning trophies or, um, getting the latest, you know, advancement in technology in their home or, you know, and so it, I think the social media makes it a lot easier to engage in social comparison and then to evaluate yourself and your own worth based on what you think other people's worth are. Unfortunately, most people only post positive things on social media. You don't see, you don't see, uh, you know, a post that says, you know, my mental 
state was very depressed today. No, <laughs> not very many people are posting that. While people are right. talking about it more, they're not posting that. They're posting the night before um, when they won a championship. They're not talking about the letdown. They're not talking about the isolation. They're not talking about um, the other things that they might be experiencing. So I, I think that it increases um, um, social comparison. I also think it increases the feeling of being judged by others, mm -hmm. particularly when you put something out and then you have, um, you know, a number of people commenting on it or, or based on how many people commented on it, that's, you know, how you determine whether you're good enough or not. Am I good enough? Because a lot of people responded to the video I put out, or does it mean I'm not good enough? I mean, we, it's going to be unique to individuals, but what types of conclusions are we drawing based on our interactions in social media? And I think a lot of those are, are not, not positive and not helpful to, to mental health. Right. I think like that, I, I kind of had a, when I was in college, you know, like that's a fairly successful career. And so I was like, you know, top of the food chain. And then when I got overseas, it was like, wait you kind of you, like you compare it's like I just started comparing myself like think about how many other liberos that are out there how many better you know I'm there's a rookie you know all this other stuff and just like it gets you down and you're like oh probably my team thinks I suck or something like that or or it kind of gets like you start comparing yourself more and more and more and then you realize like 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 you said you got to kind of pull yourself back to your roots and like who like who are you you know what I'm saying it's like it's like, mm -hmm. like this is not me like I've never never done this in my life before and I think if you're wanting to play overseas, you have to either have it, have or develop a strong like mental side of yourself and determine like who you are, or or you're gonna learn uh, through some some mentally painful uh, painful ways. But I think that's like super important. When you, when I heard that, that was like that was like a, a light bulb in my head, and I was like, yeah, that was definitely something I had to kind of go through myself for sure. Sure, definitely. I think. Also, it's interesting about the social media is that, and maybe you can touch on this, how this works, but more people now experience what maybe before like celebrities would experience because like, I don't know who's a big celebrity for maybe say Elvis Presley or like those kinds of people. They're usually the only people that are in the spotlight or that other people are seeing a lot of. And, and now I feel like it's, the gap is becoming huge between the amount of people that used to be celebrities and now I feel like everyone is getting some sort of there's got to be a f term or something but like celebrity feeling mm -hmm. to themselves where you're in the spotlight a lot or just being watched a lot and so maybe Michael Jordan before was an athlete that would have these kinds of mental not breakdowns but like pressures on him but now kids that are in high school like have two million followers playing as a junior or sophomore mm -hmm. how yeah. does that is that like celebrity thing what can you help mm -hmm. me understand how that works mm -hmm. and why that is that celebrities are usually not like they're not happy but they definitely have some things mm -hmm. that they're not doing so well about sure like fame is something hard to, to deal with i think when you're good at anything one of the challenges in continuing to do that thing is maintaining that level of performance, whether it's writing books, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when you're, when you're not good at writing books, writing's not hard. It's down and right, but you're not, it's not perfect either. It's not. Um, and so when you're a writer, then, then that becomes hard to maintain that standard that people have seen. Right. When you're an athlete doing that night day in and day out where you're exposed to the public, where they're watching, it's very difficult to do that. It's very difficult to, to go out there and perform at a certain level day in and day out. Um, it doesn't matter what, what the, the task is or what the skill is um, when you're doing something with complete exposure where you're, where everyone's watching you it becomes more difficult to maintain that performance, you know, consistently over a period of time because you have to do it with not caring what they think, with not yeah, listening to what factors. they say, not, you know, and that's, I mean, the physical part of sports is easy. 
Um, you know, that's, what's almost just ingrained in you, but can you do the physical side of that with these other voices and these other pressures? You know, I mean, um, I think by adding, you know, the kids in high school who have 2 million viewers and stuff, there's, there's natural pressure in sport. Like, you know, natural pressure is, um, it's 23, 22, and you go back to serve that and your team's down by one. That's natural pressure. Unnatural pressure is people are in the stands and they are chanting and booing at you (laughs) based on whether that serve goes in or out. You know I mean? That's just, anybody feels that energy. Anybody feels that pressure that's generated by, you know, other humans. And so Um, I don't know. I think that's a really deep topic. Um, How does, um, how has social media influenced the mental health of young people who are growing up um, with that being the norm? And I, I honestly, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. It's, it's interesting. I, I think we'd have to look at the research and read about it. It's just not something I've, you know, delved deep into that. But you would kind of narrow it down to like, Fame can maybe become mentally exhausting because of the constant pressures that they're under. I think so. I And I don't know if it's about fame as much as it's about continuing on. Because I think the question that is in the mind is, how long can I do this? Right. Can I keep doing this? And then they have a you know, another performance and they do it. And when you think of, you know, people like musicians, I think that's why, you know, and you brought up Elvis, but I mean, I think that's why you hear stories of musicians who get up for it, right? They, whether they take coffee or take some kind of upper, and then it's a, it's a total, you know, um, um, energy experience. Yeah. You're, you're amped up. It requires this level of amping. And then after the performance is over and now I can't get back down. So now I take something that's a downer. And I, I, you know, I would, I can't say, because like I said, I don't study this area. Um, but I would imagine that people who do ingest substances to help themselves get amped and then come down is part of maintaining that, that standard of, of performance that they don't believe they can achieve day in and day out. They don't know if they can meet the expectations of others. And I How think, would you, you know, there are more healthy ways to do that. You know, I mean, right. I think so what would those right. be like, how would you suggest, I know that with the national team, a lot of guys can't sleep after games. And then mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure exactly what they're doing before the game, but what are some healthy mm-hmm. suggestions for those kinds of sure. struggles, I guess? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's completely normal to come out of a match at late night and then, and then have difficulty going to sleep. I mean, the amount of energy, um, that is exerted during a match, it's hard to just come down off of that. And then that's physical energy. And then the mental energy is reviewing what occurred in the, in the game. And maybe a player like you, Micah, you're like those three sets keep that didn't go as well as you would have liked, you know, keep ruminating in your mind. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is really important is just, and I know everyone already talks about it, but being able to focus on your breath, it's one thing to breathe. We all breathe every day. It's something that we do unconsciously. Our our breath is always with us. It doesn't go away. I always say, if you're not breathing, you're either dying or you're choking. And so those are two bad things. So breathe, but to be able to be an athlete and lay down and focus on one aspect of the breath, whether it's the rise and fall of the chest, the nose, as it goes in through the nose, out through the mouth. If you can actually focus your attention just on the breath, it does two things. It quiets the mind and it relaxes the body. And it, and every time you notice the, every time you notice your focus drifting back toward those three sets that were bothering you, you would say, Oh, I recognize I drifted. Now I'm going to go back to my breath. And over a period of time, the body will relax and then you'll fall asleep. It's a, it's a nice sleep mechanism, but also it's a nice way to train focus. Um, you it's the ability to recognize my mind drifted to somewhere I didn't want it to go and drop back to where I wanted to focus it. And so I use that as a simple technique, um, to get athletes to train their focus. The other thing too, is reading helps reading really helps because, you know, not, not one's phone, reading one's phone doesn't help because that 
that light is going to, to keep you awake, but, um, reading and not something that's so heavy, maybe a novel that's got you interested in, in the storyline, even if people don't like to read, then if you read three or four pages, you know, it will change, it will just quiet the mind again. And so I think that's another strategy in terms of preparing for performance. It's about preparing, you know, in a similar, I'm not going to say the same way because when you traverse time zones and you're in different hotels and you're doing that, you can't do things always in the same way. Like if you like a two hour nap, you may not always get to have a two hour nap, but you can have checkpoints. You know, I, you know, I, I check in and I, I make sure that with between the night before and the day of performance, I get nine hours of sleep. So I just, whether that means I tack on a nap to get to the nine or whether I get the nine the whole night before, I just, my checkpoint is that I need nine hours of sleep. Um, So if you got seven and you need a two hour nap, great. Or maybe you got eight and a half and you take a 30 minute nap during the day or rest your your eyes or something like that. Um, Maybe you check in, uh, maybe you drink one cup of coffee and that's it. So your checkpoint is one cup of coffee, you know, whatever those things are, maybe it's listening to a certain kind of music. Maybe it's engaging in nature. There's some research on being in green space helps us. So if you're performing in cities where everything's gray and everything's this, then somehow, you know, one checkpoint could be engaging in some form of green space, even if it means you're watching a video um, you know, on your, on your computer. So just, it's changing the nature and the state that we're in prior to performance and getting yourself to where you need to be each time. So all athletes should have certain checkpoints in terms of meals and, and sleep and what they're drinking and, um, you know, and then do they need music? Um, do they need more socializing or more isolation and, and really understanding what you need as an athlete and then creating a little checklist, doing it every time. It's so crazy because I feel like <clears throat> sports or just research and science in general has changed like sports so much. Like Michael Jordan didn't even a lot of times practice in the off season. And now guys like the day after, like in there, we, we know like, we know like green space helps you. People would never have known that back then. They didn't even know like smoking was bad for you. <laughs> and we're like over here, like we need this. And, but when is there like a fine line of balance? Because mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes I know some individuals where they get very caught up in the science and everything like that. And then it's too much mental and mm-hmm. they're just not like sometimes the best players, not a lot's going on in their mind. Like they're just mm-hmm. like, they're not very smart and it help It actually helps them. It benefits them. And then mm-hmm. people that are very intelligent might actually, their performance might actually not be as high as it could be because they are, very intelligent or like they need this two hour nap and they're so diligent, but then they don't get it. And then what happens mm-hmm. or, and this guy's like, Oh, I eat whatever I want. Anytime I'm ready yeah. to play. Like, you know what I mean? Where does right. that, where do you outweigh the benefits of like having a schedule versus the weaknesses of like thinking mm-hmm. too much and being too involved in the science and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. I, th- I think that's why I said checkpoints and not a rigid schedule mm-hmm. because right. if you can't make a rigid schedule each time, then that might create some anxiety on the part of someone who's an overthinker. I a hundred percent agree with you. I would, you know, Micah, you brought up, um, you know, intelligent athletes or, um, what I, I mean, what I would say is deep thinkers. I think that deep thinkers are, <clears throat> more challenged um, in their sport than people who are not really, you know, worried about things like that or aren't really processing things about um, what anybody thinks or what they ate or how they prepared. And I mean, and to a degree, it would be great if we could all have that, if we could have that, hey, I'm at this point in time, I, I don't think anymore, but, you know, we, we don't turn off our thought stream. Um, and as humans, they say that there are, you know, approximately 60,000 thoughts that flow through our minds in a given day. And we don't just turn it off. Um, it's just that some athletes are much deeper in their thinking than, than others. And, and I do find that it is more of a challenge. It makes it more of a challenge. You have to get better at your ability to not control those thoughts because they're going to come and go, whether you like it or not. 
but recognize when you're in your thoughts and then reshift your attention to, to the task that you're, you're, you're performing. And so if you go back to serve and you notice your mind is wandering, oh gosh, don't miss the serve, or I'm going to be taken out if I miss the serve. Or, you know, if you go back to pass and, um, you've, you've had a bad pass on the last one. And now you're worried that your team's going to get on you. If you have a bad pass on this one, you know, um, when you recognize the thought, you just have to say, okay, I see you there. And now in order to pass the ball, I really just have to track. I'm going to get into my, out of my head and into my eyes, track the ball. And, and when I'm going back to serve, I hear you thoughts. Don't miss, don't miss. Don't miss. I'm just going to dial in my target, relax my bus muscles, take that breath and get it and really connect and then go for it. You know, it's about, it's just about recognizing and then constantly shifting. And if you could get good at that, that's a skill. Then you get good at managing all those thoughts that, that occur um, while you're performing, you know, it's, you know, anybody can perform well in the absence of thought anyone, right, because right. that's what they that's call like your flow, flow I mean, state. That's right. really what flow is, right? We right, just describe right, right. flow. Okay. Flow occurs like what? 10% of the time. And how good I don't mentally. Know, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just putting a number out there because I think it's really small. An athlete who's really mentally tough performs well in the face of adversity it, with those thoughts going through their head with they're able to focus their attention on the right thing at the wrong time in the absence of confidence. I don't feel confident right, right now. I don't know if I'll be taken out. I don't, you know what, but I'm going to dial my eyes on this ball and I'm going to, I'm going to dime this pass and here we go. Right. Um, and that's really what to me, mental toughness is all about. And I think that's the hardest thing anybody strives to become in their sport. Well, when we get overseas, we notice that like, there's a lot of really good young players that mm -hmm. when everything's going great, they are just as good as like the top played players in the league. And then you realize like the only difference is that the top players are like playing at that level, like 99% of the time. And this guy is like 25%. Mm. And so it's really Very like, streaky. yeah, everyone, well, there's a lot of talent and everyone mm -hmm. can play at the same level, just about who can do it for longer. Yeah. Like they did so you're, it for what you're saying points is, and we did it for 20. So they win. Sure. So you're saying if the physical talent is there, what's shifting is that athlete's mentality and their exactly. focus and, and it, their experience and, so and be, like just understanding. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which was, it was an interesting thought that we had when I was on my team last year, because we were all pretty much 24 and under. And we we're like, dude, we can play with these guys. Like, but then it's like we're hot and then we're losing <laughs> by 10 points and then we destroy them. And then we, yeah. and then we're like, dang, they're just consistent. That's all it is. I would say that's another thing with, with a lot of athletes that I deal with where their mentality and how they feel follows the performance. So if we got the big block, we feel good. Now we go back and serve good. If we, you know, we dimed a pass, we feel good. Now we, we crush the ball. But when it doesn't go good, <clears throat> then we don't feel good. And then that lends itself to that negative spiral as opposed to, Hey, it wasn't a perfect pass. Just go back to your vision. Just go back to your connection. Just go back to your game plan. Just go back to your, you know, and I, I really think in the end that instead of allowing your, your emotions and your mindset to follow your performance, you choose your emotional responses and you choose your mindset. And then you, you, play the probabilities that the performance will follow that. And really to me, that's consistency, right? That's how you achieve consistency. When, when you choose not to respond to imperfection, when you choose not to get down on yourself or punish yourself for missed opportunities, when you, when you're choosing a mentality and evaluating yourself each play on, did I have the mentality or not versus did I get the performance or not? And those are two totally different approaches to sport performance. And I think the totally. ones who could be consistent over a period of time are choosing the mentality and the evaluation of the mentality versus the outcome and the evaluation of the outcome to dictate how they feel and how they think and how they behave on the court. Me and Joe Gage's brother talked about that a little where I was like, Joe, you know, what's interesting is that like when you're it's game point and you like roll shot your serve, and then you like, say you lose or you win. 
it's actually the mentality that you appreciate because say you're at game point and you just ripped it and you're like super aggressive and you miss, you actually just don't care as much because you're like happy with the way that you approach the situation. And I think that's kind of what can tie into what you're saying. Like Mm -hmm. if you go after things with the mentality that you appreciate or respect, whether that's being smart or being aggressive or whatever you put an emphasis on that takes courage to do. Sure. The outcome is just like, you're just like, well, I went after it. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I wasn't scared I think, of the moment. I, I went after it and it didn't work, but sure. I didn't like back down or whatever that answer is. So you brought up an issue that's very sensitive to me. So the question is to me is what, what matters the most is was the serve purposeful or was the serve based on fear? So if you roll shotted your final shot and it was based on you know, serving yeah, them short. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Catch him. Yeah. If you hit two tough serves, you got them on their heels, and now you're going to chip one in. That's a purposeful serve. Yeah, but that's still an aggressive move. It's an aggressive like you're doing move. doing something with yes. aggression or with yes. purpose, like yes. you said. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you've made two on one mentality, and now you, now you're playing the gambler's fallacy. Hey, I made two. I'm probably not going to hit another tough serve like that. So I'm just going to chip it in. That is, that is a very fragile mentality. That right. is a fragile ap- approach to consistently playing at a high level. And, and um, it's hard not to do that because it feels, it feels safe. It feels more comfortable. I, and, but in it's the like end, you have your it, two marbles and you're like, I don't want, I, I'll keep the two, you know, it's like, yeah. I don't want to gamble yeah. anymore. I'll just take, I, take I just think home. if you want to, if you want to win gold medals, you need that consistent mentality. If you if you want to win occasional medals, you play safe. But you but the only way to ever truly maximize and know what you're capable of achieving is to push the envelope to to and I'm not saying when I'm saying push the envelope, I'm not saying be reckless. I'm just saying choose a target and then um you know be a be aggressive in in your mindset not you know be purposeful in your mindset not shift your mindset based on the situation that had occurred previously because it no longer exists right what happened in the past only exists in your mind so each serve or each pass or each whatever should be should be treated as it's the only one see that's that's so interesting because i've heard very difficult to do yeah, I was going to say, I've heard that before where everyone's like, but, or Sparal uses that where it's like rolling a dice. You roll a six, you roll a six, you roll a six. The fourth one, you're still, you still have six opportunities. And it's like one sixth of a chance to roll a six. And the same for serving. But then I've always thought like, but that's like with dice. Like this is with humans. And humans aren't that way. Like humans, you hit three good serves and it's like the chances you're going to serve another one are higher than if you missed three of your last serves because we're human. We're not a dice. Like we actually yeah, so are what thinking is the conscious, consciously of like mm-hmm. making and missing. So that's the only thing I've had against that. Like, cause I'm like, it actually does in a perfect world, you'd want it to not have an impact, but it might. And so how do we, knowing that we're human, adjust that philosophy in a sense where it's like, Hey, we know you've missed five, probably not, it's probably not as e- equal of a chance you're going to just destroy the serve and it's going to go great. So how sure. do we build that confidence again? Or like you do hit one 60%, but it's like mm-hmm. in a good zone. And then maybe the next one you're feeling a little better. It's like now mm-hmm. we can do something new because we're not at, we're not machines in the sense, you know, it's like we do have mm-hmm. those feelings and emotions and how do we, with an understanding of them, act, help our performance, understanding we are human. Sure. Well, I mean, oh, go ahead, Gage. No, no, I was just thinking it's funny how, like, uh, one thing that I've realized about overseas, like, players, especially the older, the um, more, the veterans of the game, 
like they're they just realize they're like today's not my day like and but they'll still just keep risking totally. just still just keep going totally. after they're like yeah oh, today's just not my day or it's like yeah but they're still just gonna keep going after and they're just like yeah you know what <laughs> but like the younger players are like oh man like what did i just do and i half it's like the coach is gonna get more than the younger players when the older players just not on it's just like yeah well it's not just mm. not happening today i think that's mm. an awesome attitude but it has that to that is an that is an awesome though. attitude that i've yeah. never heard where like the guy's like oh the Italian on our last team would always say, like, no, my dude, it's not our day. Look at them. They're playing incredible. And I'm like, geez, like, that's it? Like, why don't we do something about it? And he's like, I am. But still, it's not our day. <laughs> I love it. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Micah, you brought it up. Um, the difference between a, a rolling a dice and a human is a conscious emotional system. Right, but I think right. that gets back to my point. What you're describing is a conscious emotional system that is reflecting on what previously occurred and now making a decision. What I'm what I'm proposing is a conscious conscious emotional system that doesn't care what previously occurred and is choosing a consistent mindset as the approach to every serve. Totally. Is no, that I, hard to do? Absolutely. That's what I, I, I mean. I totally get the, like, I've always understood the premise. I was just like, if we are in a position or somebody doesn't have the capability, the capacity at the time to overcome those thoughts and emotions, we then have to switch our mindset to like, okay, how are we going to like play knowing we do have these emotions and we don't have the capacity to overcome them and like, the people that can manage those situations are also better off as well mm-hmm. because they are just more aware of like, it's, I'm not playing good. Okay. Help me out. And like, let me pat, give me a good ball so I can feel sure. good about myself. Even though I yeah. know that's not what I should be doing. I need it. Sure. And then it's sure. like, okay, well at least if you can admit you need it, we can do something right. about it and maybe get you out of your situation. Mm-hmm. It's someday. Yeah. Just some days just like, I think with dice is like there's always gonna be one through six, but I don't know. Just some days, or it's like no matter what your like mental, uh, like for example, it's just gonna hit. It's just some days I just go and serve and pass, and it just hits the weirdest parts of my platform. And I can be the most calm, collected, confident guy out there, but then just some days it's just not gonna work. So that's why when it comes like with serving, like I understand like maybe like tapering off some stuff, and I mean, but then again, like you said, that's still going. That's would you say that's more. I mean, we wouldn't say aggressive. We would say it's more strategic or fear-based. You know what I'm saying? If it's like... Right. It was a, yeah, that's a good question. Like, I think like, a strategic serve is still a forward mindset. So right. let's say you are having what we would consider a poor serving day where you're not getting the outcome. And let's say your focus <laughs> there. Because my, my first response is, well, where is your focus? Are you having a poor serving day because you're physically fatigued or you're physically have some something physically wrong or is your focus not in the right spot at the right time and my argument is that it's typically a focus issue it's sometimes a fatigue issue so maybe you're not getting you know the same you're not jumping you know maybe you're off by a couple you know centimeters or something like that but um when people are having off serving, typically it's because they're thinking too much and whatever those thoughts may be, I mean, could be run the gamut from who's in the stands to what the coaches think on the bench to what my teammates are thinking to the score to any kind of situational issues, maybe something that happened completely off the court. They, they're typically in what I would call split focus, one eye on the court and one eye on whatever is going on in their head. Um, and, and so I, I lost my thought what I was going to get at, but, um, so still, so let's just say you're having that poor performance. Um, then the question I would ask myself as an athlete, if I wanted to be successful would not to be to do a serve. I never, or a rarely practice. That's true. Like, Hey, I'm not feeling good. So let me roll shot this in. I mean, what percentage of the practice serves are roll shots. Now, if that's a strategic shot that you serve in practice 50% of the time, even 25% of the time, and that's what you feel like is your highest probability serve, then you go, then you commit to that serve and you go hit it. But what I see players doing is they don't hit that serve in practice. 
And then they go to, they revert to what they consider is a safe serve and the safe serve ends up not being safe because they're concerned about missing. Their muscles are tighter and now they're holding, holding off. And now all of a sudden this roll shot goes out of bounds or this roll shot hits into the net or this roll shot. What I thought was safe really wasn't safe at all. And what would have been safe was, Hey, my highest probability serve is from Mm. one to one when I really am dialed in with my focus. So I'm just going to do my routine, dial my eyes on one because I'm giving myself the length of the court. So I'm giving myself maybe the largest area. So I'm giving myself the widest variability of air. Should I air? But I'm going to now, now that I've decided and committed to the serve, I'm just going to see my target and trust my physical self to execute what, what I've decided to do. I think indecision and, and fear get in the way of um, committing to, to the serve and then executing it in a way that's more natural and more free without the, you know, I'm not trying to take something off of it. You know, I, I, I use this analogy a lot, but when you're shooting a basketball and you're, you move closer to the basket or further away from the basket, you don't think about how much force and trajectory you're putting on the ball. It's not how it's created. That's not how the human body creates it you lock your eyes on the rim and whether you're further away or or closer, your mind calibrates force trajectory, touch, and so forth. And you're able to make those adjustments. So same thing is true in volleyball. You lock your eyes on the target where you want to hit it. And then you trust that your body's going to make those force and trajectory adjustments based on how far you are away from that target. And, and you all serve so, so much. You're everyone's capable of hitting a serve. Now it's, it's just what gets in the way of that mentally. Would it be productive to create that roll shot as a, I guess, break the glass in case of emergency kind of thing? <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, like I, if that I person think... hasn't practiced it, that makes sense. But what if they actually are like, like any smart thing, if you're a Marine, yeah. you're like, what's our backup yeah. plan? Or yeah. like, if you, you got a second parachute, like, why would yeah. we not go into a match with like, dude, I am not hitting my hard one. What is, I've actually practiced this other one. I, I, I fundamentally agree with you. And that is what I consider a float serve. And, and the reason why I consider a float serve, it's a highly effective serve that's less complex. So when you reduce the complexity of a physical motion, it increases the probability that you'll perform it well. Um, and so with a float serve, the ball's in front of you the whole time, the court's in front of you the whole time. You're not, you're not jumping and extending up here and then hitting something over there. And so I think developing a really great float serve as a high probability serve when you want to get the ball in the court, but hitting the float with, you know, um, yeah, with less movement. speed goes a longer way with the float. Yeah. And I, I don't think you have to hit a float with pace for it to be effective. I think exactly. you have to hit a float with movement. And, and that has to do with, you know, salt, nice contact and, and then really targeting. I mean, then the target becomes even more important. Like where I'm trying to hit the, a seam, I'm trying to hit, you know, the two seam or the three seam. So again, giving yourself the largest court space, um, for whatever serve you choose to go with, but yeah, developing different serves is important for sure. And then when you get into a situation where you don't feel as good, you commit to your highest probability serve. And for some people, their highest probability serve is, you know, one to one or, you know, one to the two seam. And I'm just going to going to go back and do what I do every single time I go back. And I'm just going to do that consistently and focus my eyes and go for it. But for some people, maybe I don't even want to call it a roll shot. I would call it I would develop a cut shot if I thought that was an effective serve. And then in practice, I would evaluate which serve do I hit um, for the highest probability. And if the cut shot is the serve I hit at the highest probability, I'd use it. And if the float serve is the highest probability, I'd use it. And if just, you know, my traditional jump serve is highest probability. And then the second question is, okay, this is my highest probability serve to what location, you know, down the line, probably a lower probability because now you've got the sideline to air in and out, you know, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a science, but it's unique to each individual. And so it's about going to practice and understanding what your capabilities are and, and where your strengths are, and then having your strength to fall back on versus a, a serve that you don't do in practice. And you don't, until you get into a, a situation where 
I'm going to, I'm going to hit this comfort serve. And now you hit the comfort serve into the net. And that's what we found in our research. You know, if you look at a team like Brazil, for example, their national team, when they get behind by a large margin, they go back to the service line and pound serves. It's almost like, Hey, freedom to totally mess up and freedom just to go back and, and crush it. Cause in their mind, this, this, this set is lost. Um, and they go back and they crush it. I mean, to me, it seems like eight times out of 10, they serve their way right back into that match. <laughs> and next thing you know, they're winning that set. Right. Um, because it's what, what happened is freeing it's freedom they freed it themselves. Like. Yeah. They freed themselves. But what if you could just have that mindset and that freedom? I mean, so what it tells you is they're capable of serving that way, <laughs> regardless of the score. That's how they're capable of serving. So, and then what it does is it, it transfers the pressure. Now it transferred the pressure to the passers. And now they got a couple of bad passes and now, and now it takes the setter out of rhythm and the hitters are out of rhythm. <clears throat> yeah. You've taken a team that felt very comfortable and very confident and you've put pressure on them now. And now they're out of rhythm and now they're thinking, and now all of a sudden you're feeling good about yourself. It's like, and now, and that's really the definition of momentum the, you know, momentum really is psychological because your focus and your effort changed your <laughs> one focus and effort went from, Hey, we're not performing well. Let's just die. You know, let's just go after them. And now they're focusing on the task at hand and, and the, the receiving team is all of a sudden like, Oh my gosh, they're having a tight moment. Like, wow, they're really serving bombs. And now we're out of rhythm. And now, now someone's going back to serve and they're worried about the score and they're worried about all these other things, as opposed to just again, allowing the mentality to drive the performance rather than the outcome to drive, drive the mentality. Cause I would be curious how Brazil would do, and maybe they wouldn't do well, but if they serve like that all the time and a few other teams do it too, you see it. in. I think the Serbian team does it. I think they just go back there and blast serves when they're behind. I mean, I think the Italian team does it. I, I could be wrong. Maybe that's just my own external observation, but I do think we, we see that a lot. I think what's like interesting about my little experience with the USA team and then with like a lot of people from all over the world outside of that is I guess that aspect of like humanness. And like I feel like the USA team's very it's probably the most calculated like psychological like the other guys are just emotional and they don't it's like it's their it's their sword. It's the double-edged sword. Like, they understand that they're emotional and then, like, it carries them and it doesn't. And then they'll, like, mm-hmm. go off at each other and then, like, be the best friends. And I'm just, like, it's part of it's refreshing because you're, like, oh, wow. Like, this is very human. Like, it, we're not robots in a sense. But it also can be the opposite. We're, like, dude, we need to get get it together. Like, just, like, start sure. start being normal. Um, but that's what also what stands out to me about that story is that like there, they, Brazil can serve that way maybe all the time, but it's like that freedom is the human aspect of their game or like of the situation that it's like, it just happens. And that's just what makes volleyball, like something you can't predict is the human aspect of it as well. Sure. I, I agree with you. I think that, um, I think that when you allow the emotional system to dictate, the highs are high and the lows yeah, are low. Yeah. They're definitely and, on a roller coaster. And they just keep on coming, right? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, and I think what you, you know, that's one way to approach it. And and I think a lot of teams, and I think we've all been on teams that have that. You're riding the emotional roller coaster of the season. Um, but I think if you want to consistently perform at a high level, consistently and and maybe at this level you're still having peaks and valleys but you're kind of right you're because you are human you're never going to be perfect it's never you you are going to be affected but then it's about recognizing it as quickly as possible to get to get back you know yeah. and i think um sure riding the high when you're flowing you then just flow yeah. But when you're not flowing, it's nice to have things to go back to that I think these other teams don't necessarily I think they just ride totally. the low. <laughs> totally. But you know, yeah, like I don't get how they I guess they're just also very good volleyball players. Different Absolutely. culture too. At the Different end of the culture. day, they're just like sure. You're like, how is this team like 
they're like firecrackers and but they're also just extremely good at blood. Also, we don't mean to take too much of your time. We can wrap things up, Gage. I just sure. looked and it's been an hour. Um, no, no, no. I just want to say, well, Andrea, just there's a reason why you're definitely Team USA uh, uh, sports psychologist. It's because you definitely done research. Mental and, coach. And mental coach. Right? Sorry, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of uh, titles that we could listed there. And we just want to thank you so much for hopping on the pod, and we wish you the best of luck and best of luck this summer. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank wish you, you, Andrea. Wish you the best of luck as well. Really, thanks okay. a lot. Yeah, I hope to see you both in the gym. Um, yeah. Somewhere soon, sometime soon. No, Us too. You can't handle the heat. You can't, you can't handle the heat. You know, when we have guests on this podcast. I usually put them into two, uh, two categories. One is the one where we, you know, we're joking around, we're laughing. Usually, a good friend of ours. Um, or two, the ones where you shut up and you listen to them because they have a lot of information and you just try and absorb as much as possible from that person. And Andrea Becker is one of those people. Like, I love the guests where we have. You just say like such a, a like a simple, broad question, but they bring so much more information and light to it where you just are just like sitting there just listening for a certain amount of time. And I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, after those, like, like if those wondering out there what it's like interviewing someone like that, um, it's just like afterwards just makes you kind of think about a lot of things. And, and personally, we do bring into practice like that kind of way of thinking. And like the stuff she touched upon, something that I'll be bringing into practice as well. And I've said this a billion times. Again, this podcast is definitely for our audience out there, but a lot of times for us, you know, we ask personal questions on here. And uh, we just take, take you on a ride. But like she said, there's, she talked a lot about routines. And let's get in routines here with Manscaped. Use a promo code, Volleyballs, all cap, no cap. You know, it's a new year. Maybe a new little routine. Maybe it can be your pre, pre-volleyball routine. It can be your pre-match routine. The lawnmower 4.0 and the, the performance packet 4.0. You know, use a promo code, Volleyballs, all cap, no cap. And then as well as Dr. Prices. What other pre-match or during the match drink would you rather go to with the little Dr. Prices vitamins? Again, use the promo code Addison20 for 20% off. And just remember, if you can't handle the heat, get out of the kitchen. This has been another presented by Addison.